Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I am here with author, uh, consultant, and former pastor and chaplain, which we'll hear about, Steve Cuss. Uh, Steve has had a huge impact on my life. Um, for Christmas, my wife gave me the book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. We might talk more why my wife would give me that book for Christmas. Uh, but today, uh, for Why God Why, we are doing the question, which I feel like so many people have, why does my job make me more anxious? And this episode is coming off of a series about our job and career, so it's kind of an addendum um, with the company Leader, L-E-A-D-R, but I thought instead of focusing big on just our job, there's a lot of anxiety around our jobs, so I thought Steve would be great to kind of cap that series um, as a standalone uh, podcast. So Steve, welcome to Why God Why. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, great to be with you. Awesome. Hey, let's start here for our listeners that don't know you. Um, how did you become an anxiety, quote unquote, expert? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I see the word expert, I guess I think, well, because I've carried a lot of anxiety in my life. Um, but I think I, I became interested in this and, and really made it my life study when I discovered at a young age that I am simply much more anxious than I thought I was. I was a confident uh, 24-year-old and uh, had had some ministry experience and, and then ran smack into my own incompetence as a trauma chaplain. There's something about grief and death and loss, you know, the really the worst moments of people's life that really sober you up quickly when you're a young leader and you realize, I don't belong here. I don't know what I'm doing. But these people, these really good people need me to learn something so I can help them. And uh, what I learned was the the way every human being carries chronic anxiety, which is a particular kind of anxiety that I study, and how we spread it to each other. Um, and I had the incredible privilege of learning that from one of the key chaplains who was trained in what's known as family systems theory. And so he trained us in that. And then I went on to grad school to study it more. But family systems theory in short is simply the awareness of your own anxiety and the awareness of how it spreads in groups and how a leader or a parent can de-escalate it. So that's probably how I became a so-called expert. Experts definitely uh, quotes, uh, if I'm an expert in it, it's because I've carried a lot of it and had to wrestle with it a lot. You know, before we go further, you know, so I'm thinking that someone's listening to this and Steve, you just kind of strike me as someone that walks into the room, you know, just even the sound of your voice. Maybe if I met you when you were 24, you might've been different, but you know, there's uh, there's a certain slowness to your voice. There's a certain kind of calmness. And I'm guessing that the 24-year-old Steve didn't look anxious. And so for some of our listeners that say, I I'm not anxious. I walk into the room. I'm the leader. You know, I know what I'm talking about. Take us back to 24, besides just the trauma, maybe even just in a regular church experience more than a chaplain. As you look back and say, I was more anxious than I think. What were some of those signs to you? Well, I think like most people, when I was 24, I would have said anxiety is worry and fear. And I would have defined myself as somebody who doesn't really worry and isn't afraid of anything. Mm. And I had evidence to back it up. I, I moved halfway across the world by myself to study theology. And when I landed, I didn't know anybody. I I knew one family in the United States and they live like 800 miles away. So those would have been the kinds of narratives I would have had to say, I, I'm not worried, I'm not afraid. But in systems theory, anxiety is actually reactivity. And I was a highly reactive person. Um, I wouldn't have known it. I was pretty unaware of what was bubbling under the surface of my life. But my need to be the center of attention, my need to be the funniest or the smartest guy in the room. And then on a pretty dark level, the things I would do to get those needs, if I wasn't getting them, would, would probably show a wiser person that I was filled with anxiety. So yeah, for a lot of particularly leaders who are type A, driven, entrepreneurial, that's, that's how I would describe myself, we, we are slow to realize the impact we have when we walk into the room. Mm. Um, because we don't know what was going on in that room before we walked in. Or for some people, 
who are kind of large and in charge. That's how I probably was at that point in my life. We don't care. We just think that's what it's good thing to do. So, yeah, I have slowed down a lot, and and really it was the chaplaincy and and just the just the onslaught of death and tragedy that brought me to the end of myself. Uh, really, for me, was a death and resurrection. I guess um, that that I have be- become quite a different kind of person. Uh, I think I'm aware now, or not long after that time, I'm aware of how much that confidence was hiding a pretty profound insecurity. Mm. I, I want to stick here. So I, I think what I hear you saying is, you know, if you see anxiety as like worry or fear, you might miss out on just, uh, we can call them habits or even just reactions. So, you know, when it gets tense in the meeting room, it's, I'm going to tell a joke. Or, you know, when someone brings you a problem, it's this immediate need to fix it. I mean, what are some of those? Th- I mean, would you say that that's it or is it a little bit more than that? Oh, those are great. Those are fine examples of it. Um, chronic anxiety is, is different than, for example, uh, PTSD anxiety or acute anxiety. So there are all these subsets of anxiety. Chronic anxiety is my field. It's built on false need false beliefs and assumptions, assumptions we make about ourselves, assumptions about God and other people. So in short, chronic anxiety is generated when we don't get what we think we need. For most human beings, that comes down to like a few categories, Uh, control, perfection, always getting it right, Uh, always being there for people. There's certain leaders that if somebody's in trouble, they feel compelled to rush in and help. So control, perfection, always being there for people, always knowing the answer and some form of identity or approval. So in my case, uh, I am driven by the need to be liked and the need to be impressive. And these are false needs because actually I don't need those things to be okay. But as a leader, when I don't get them, I get anxious. So as a pastor, if I think someone's upset with me, uh, I'll get anxious. And that doesn't look like worry and fear. It usually comes out in reactivity, defensiveness, combativeness, sometimes some form of a depression. Uh, More sophisticated, it could look like an anger fantasy I have in my head. But what people can do is they can try to figure out, well, is it control? Is it perfection? Is it people-pleasing? These are the broad categories, and from there, then you can kind of dial down and get a bit more specific. Well, and even just to get personal, um, I definitely relate to the people-pleasing, and I think part of the reason I relate to that is I I noticed last year I I would ask this question in the middle of a debate or just a conflict, are we okay? And, And I just, it was hitting me because even, you know, my wife's a mental health therapist, just on our days off, you know, there's this need that when you get that email to like respond to it, um, even if you're not acknowledged, like, Hey, we'll get this phone call. And even before we came on, someone called me and they said the dreaded words that I think every pastor and every person kind of fears, Hey, you know, we just need to talk. And they're like, well, can we plan a time? It'll take 10 minutes. And I said, no, let's do it right now. And they actually just wanted to serve somewhere. But I could feel my anxiety come up and just even in the workplace, that's where I kind of see and sense it is like you're doing these things and what you're saying with chronic anxiety, you have no idea you do them until you step back and say, oh, this is why I'm doing that. That's right. And and I think one of the top sources of anxiety for any pasta is the text, hey, we need to talk. It's a great case study because if, if it's true that chronic anxiety is built on assumptions, then that text is somewhat neutral. We need to talk because, and it's the filling in the blanks that gets you anxious. But you never say, because I'd like to give a quarter million dollar check to the church. Like in your mind, it's never that. It turns out in this case with this guy or, or lady, it was somebody who wanted to volunteer for the church, but you're replaying the previous times like the if you're running the odds most of the time those kinds of texts mean um something bad and so what you can do as a leader is you can use those kinds of situations like a rorschach test 
and try to figure out, well, what am I believing in this moment? So what I normally happen for me, I normally think I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. That's usually where I go. Um, another simple test is um, put a leader in the room and tell them that they are not allowed to give the answer when people ask for help and just see how long they can last. You know, that was one of my lessons as a chaplain was learning how to be a calm presence of silence mm. when I so desperately wanted to speak. Because when we listen, we're not in control. When we speak, we are, speaking is an act of claiming control. And, you know, in the field of grief and death, way too many faith leaders can't manage their anxiety, so they say stupid things to people in grief. And they really think it's being helpful, but all they're doing is shrinking somebody else's pain down to a size that they can manage as a leader. It's very selfish. Mm. So that's all anxiety. Uh, so in the workplace, um, you know, noticing the pressure you're feeling to do something, and before you react and do it, try to figure out what's driving or what belief do I have about myself or sometimes what makes you anxious is when you catch another person's assumption. They have an assumption about you. And rather than defining yourself, you're just adopting their assumptions. Mm. It's pretty sophisticated, but those are a couple of paths to managing your own anxiety. Wow, that's that's really, really deep. So where I want to go is I'm thinking about our listeners right now. Um, they're in their 20s. They might come to church once or, or twice a, you know, a quarter or a year, and they're even asking this, why does a church even care about this question? You know, and this is kind of why we want to interview you. You know, we've been through the coronavirus. You know, mental health has, I wouldn't say necessarily a more positive or negative footing, but it definitely has a different footing than maybe five years ago. But yeah. let's say I work for a nine to five, I work for a startup, I work for an entrepreneur. What do I need to see in the future about anxiety to be a healthy employee, to be a healthy team member? And maybe what does Christianity bring to that that's unique to anything else? Yeah, that what a great question. And let me answer the last part of it first. If chronic anxiety is built on false belief, false need and assumptions, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is belief is built on truth, mm. then on a very simple level, if we stay in our false beliefs and false assumptions, we're bound. But if we actually embrace the truth, we're set free. So I think the gospel has everything to do with our chronic anxiety. I wanna be really careful, Peter, because there are people who have experienced actual trauma that are carrying PTSD, that's a different form of anxiety. There are also forms of anxiety that require psychiatric help, medication. I believe medicine's a gift from God that we should avail ourselves of. Mm -hmm. So like generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive, some of these challenges, my tools aren't really designed to help those. Those, those and trauma-based anxieties are really meant for the professional therapy couch and the psychiatrist. Now, the gospel has a lot to say and a lot to help. But this form, what, what I call garden variety anxiety for a leader or a parent uh, or a workplace environment, it's built, built on false belief and false assumptions. So letting the gospel rummage around in your assumptions can really set you free, it can really open your heart up to actually encounter the love of God that you believe in, but maybe don't experience. Mm. Because it's really difficult to be in the grip of anxiety and experience God's love at the same time. It's actually almost impossible. So noticing your anxiety actually is a, becomes a portal to lower it and actually let God invade you when you're feeling reactive. Because it, when you're reactive, you're operating out of a false need that you don't actually need. And, and instead of standing on your well-being in Jesus, you're trying to get what you don't need. That was kind of the first side of the question. I, I think the reason to practice this in the workplace, I had a, a guy in our church came out to me uh, after my book came out and he'd read my book and and he said, he, this guy's a software engineer. And he said, hey, um, nowadays when we, when we develop software and re release it to our clients and it has a bug in it, it somehow the software is broken. He said, it used to be that we would go back to the code and try to see where do we go wrong in the code. He said, now what we're trained to do 
is go back to our relationships as developers and figure out was there a relational breakdown in the development team that led to a breakdown in the software. Mm. I thought that was fascinating. And I think more and more workplaces are realizing if you want productivity, long-term tenure of your employees, a well-being in your culture, then the leader's health is the number one indicator of a healthy company. And the higher up you are in the company, the more important your emotional health is because you have the most power. So I personally think it's essential. It's, it's funny, Peter, because I, I have some business people, they'll read my book or hear me do workshops and stuff, and they'll say, oh, well, like, like you just sit around and talk about your feelings all day? Do you actually ever get anything done? <laughs> and I'm like, you have, you have no idea. You know, it's kind of an accusation. And I'm like, no, of course we don't talk about our feelings all day. We get what's going on under the surface out in the open so we can be more productive. But what happens in your organization is everyone's tiptoeing around you. Everyone's walking on eggshells around you. They're afraid to tell you the truth, which is that you're a domineering leader. You don't know how to listen and you don't know how to shut up. So you're a rigid communicator, for example. And so the good people in the room don't feel free to share their opinions. Like some of these things that everybody knows, but no one talks about. My job is to come into an organization and teach them how to have these difficult conversations so they can build team health. Well, I love that um, because I, I think everybody relates to that. So let me just kind of create a little scenario. Um, you know, of course, I would encourage everybody to hire you um, in their organization, but maybe someone's not in the position to make that decision. So, you know, a customer comes to a boss you know, we'll say CEO, COO, and they say this didn't work, it failed, and they might be one out of 100. So that boss then goes to someone else, you know, we'll say the employee, and just brings that problem and situation. And, you know, you can assume what was the problem, what was the, all of this, and obviously it was some type of problem. It could have been a misunderstanding by the employee. And then let's just have some fun. The boss, the CEO, COO, is a um, is a Gen Xer or a Boomer. The employee is a Gen Z or Millennial. And let's start with you know the Millennial or Gen Z or employee of how do I respond to something that's seemingly anxious, feeling like ninety nine out of a hundred is really good. You're obviously really anxious about this. Talk us through that situation of what might happen, but also what might be healthier ways to respond. Yeah, I think what you're trying to do, it's a complex question. And uh, it's also tricky to give concrete to a theoretical, but what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to go from just noticing content, what each of you are saying, and you're trying to pay attention to process, mm -hmm. unspoken expectations, unspoken assumptions. You're trying to notice when the reactivity between you is rising. And anxiety management is as is difficult. It's not easy, but it is simple, if that makes sense. I'm not saying this is easy, but it's fairly simple. It's naming the dynamic between you. Mm. One of the simplest things that you can do when you notice that you're getting anxious in a room is to tell the other person that you're getting anxious. And just by telling them that, it will lower your anxiety. Mm. It's a very vulnerable thing to do. But one of the things I use to notice when I'm getting anxious is I've stopped listening to learn and I'm now listening to defend or listening to fix. Mm. And I can feel that posture shift in myself. And anyone can do this. When, when you get some practice is you can pay attention to yourself in any meeting and notice when I'm no longer listening to learn from that person, I'm now listening to defend myself. Mm. Once you notice that shift, you can say that to that person. You can say, hey, um, would you say that again, please? Because I noticed that I'm becoming defensive. So I just wanted to say, I really want to hear what you're saying. Now, your average person will give you a mulligan on that and actually be very grateful and it'll lower the temperature in the room. Where this gets tricky is when your boss is also unaware mm. or doesn't care 
or even as on the narcissism scale. That's when things get difficult because you can only use this kind of work with people who are moving toward each other, who care about each other, who care about their own impact on each other. If you're in an organization where that's not true, the best thing you can do is manage yourself, but you really can't change a system. You can't change an organization, but you can lower your own reactivity and that'll still make a difference. Well, and, and I think the heart of the question, obviously it's complex from person to person, knowing the best way to communicate. But what I'm even sensing and hearing from you is with chronic anxiety, and I think you did, it's super helpful not to put that in the box of PTSD and other yeah. things, but we're talking about chronic anxiety. But is, you know, if you go down the organizational chart, instead of the anxiety stopping somewhere, it ends up just getting passed to other people. So it goes from the CEO to the vice president, to the director, to the coordinators, to the admin assist. And I, I think what you're trying to help our listeners in a very complex way is just to say, you have the opportunity to be where the anxiety not necessarily stops, but you often say, how can you be a non-anxious presence? And I think that that's something in the workplace that we can work on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The The higher up you are in your organization, the more your calm presence can infect the room. Mm. Let's Let's say that you're not even a manager. Let's say you're like the the task person. You're the one that all the work flows down to and you're the one listening to this and there's several layers of hierarchy above you. On the one hand, it's true that you have the least amount of power. On the other hand, you are right. If anxiety is contagious, it, we just keep dumping it on each other. The beauty of, of this theory, it's called systems theory, is that it forces each of us to be responsible for ourselves and not blame another person. It's probably mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about this theory is the temptation is for us to blame someone else for the lot in our life. System theory forces us to see what we are doing that's contributing to the problem. The idea of system theory is we're all interconnected whether we want to be or not. So while you're blaming someone else for their, their behavior, it might be that one of your recurring patterns is contributing to that problem. Therefore, if you change your recurring pattern, it changes the dynamic between you. So even if you're like an administrative assistant, let's say, for example, I, I've consulted on this kind of situation where the administrative assistant says, what do I do? Because my boss, every time he calls me, it's always urgent. I have to stop what I'm doing. I have to sacrifice my well-being to get done whatever he wants in the moment. Mm. And she's, she or he is very frustrated at the boss. When you dig into it, you say, well, you're contributing to the problem because you're allowing it. You're letting him get away with it. Mm -hmm. you, you've, you've never talked to him about it or, and the person will say something, well, if I do, I'll get fired and he'll get another administrator. And then you'll say, well, okay, then, then what? Like is your well being what's more important, a healthy work environment or you keeping this job? I was doing some work for a political operative, oddly enough. And she was described, she said that the politician would fr frequently call at 3 a.m. with a project that I would then have to hurry up and have ready by morning. And she said, the problem is I have to do it because if not, he'll just fire me and get someone else. And I was like, well, then why not get fired and let him get someone else? But it's because she had a false need. She had adopted his assumption that this was just what had to happen in order for the political situation to play out. And maybe that's true. I don't really know anything about politics. What I know is about well-being. And uh, so she did. She got out. She quit. And uh, probably what happened is he just got the next young, ambitious political operative in to be basically his slave 24-7. So it's just fascinating to notice the assumptions we hold, mm. even down to keeping our job. And I think w one of the gifts I offer is I'll just come in and I'll give you permission to think freely. You know, like I'm not, I'm not saying you should quit. I'm saying, well, what if you did quit? And just exploring that gives you the freedom uh, because what anxiety does is it kind of makes you feel trapped. It makes you think that you're on a path you can't get off it. But the gospel actually has a lot of paths for us. And so it might be that you have to have this job 
to provide for your family and for your vocation, but it might also be true that there are many other options for you. So that's one. And then the, the second, and obviously I covered a lot of ground there, but the second one is you can always go to the person above you and tell them how you experience them. Mm -hmm. And if they are a healthy person, it's likely they will attempt to adjust their behavior because they don't want to negatively impact you. And that's what's known as naming the dynamic. And so you never do it while you're anxious. You never do it while you're reactive. You have to calm yourself down, which takes work. So that means you're having this conversation days or sometimes weeks after the recurring pattern. And you're saying, hey, we have this dynamic between us. You always call and make it urgent and sudden and I get anxious and I have to sacrifice other things. And that's one part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is me, is I let you get away with it. So I would like to have a conversation, see, is there another way we can do this? Now. Once you've had that conversation, you're going to know a lot more about the person you're working for than you did before. Are they healthy? Are they interested in health? Are they interested in your well-being? Or are they more narcissistic, domineering? If they're doubling down on your vulnerability, that's a really bad sign. If they're open to it, that's a really good sign. So that's just a couple of things you can do to kind of sort it out. One of my favorite things that you've said, and I've used this personally, is you've said, the most anxious person in the room has the most power. Um, so we've talked about the dynamic of, you know, maybe a boss and an employee. Let's talk about the dynamic of, you know, kind of the same people on um, the org chart. You know, so you're in a meeting with all peers and this idea of the most anxious person in the room has the most power. Talk about that dynamic. Obviously, you can't go super specific, but you know, walk people through kind of what you've seen in those situations and maybe how to, you know, identify and just kind of handle that. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the more fun, playful parts of systems theory is it's almost like the movie, The Matrix, where systems theory gives you an insight into a whole other world that you've always felt but never seen. And it's the world of anxiety contagion, the way anxiety spreads in a group. So yeah, you can, you can walk into a room and watch the anxiety be caught. You know, one person's anxious. And again, that doesn't mean they're worried or afraid. Sometimes they have the loudest voice, the most domineering opinion. Sometimes they're interrupting another person. They're not letting someone finish. There's all these signs that someone is being reactive. So when people hear the word anxiety, if they think, reactivity that'll help them see it and this is what's fascinating about it is the most anxious person in the room often has the most power regardless of hierarchy and so let's just exaggerate it all the way down to a toddler in a supermarket having a tantrum having a meltdown that's all the evidence you need that that toddler has very little actual hierarchical power they're not an adult you know they're not an employee of the store but you watch a little four-year-old captivate everyone around them the parent catches the anxiety the employees catch the anxiety the other parents who are shopping are praying the prayer of the pharisee thank you lord that i'm not like that parent <laughs> a sinner you know so in your situation when it's peers yeah what you're looking for is reactivity and one of the things you can look for is um who who must get their way to be okay so that when they're not listened to, they feel dismissed. They start speaking in exaggerations and absolutes. This is the way it is. They'll kind of make a statement in a way that's declarative mm. rather than open and curious. And your most powerful, you've got two tools available. One is to manage yourself so you don't catch it. And so you don't devolve into, you know, fourth grade on the playground. I know you are, but what am I? That kind of thing. The second tool you have is curiosity. Curiosity is one of the most powerful tools to de-escalate anxiety. So particularly with somebody who like declares, this is just the way it is. It's almost like they've landed the plane of the conversation and then they've even locked the cockpit and they're off the plane. And there you are like sitting on the tarmac, like, hey, wait, I, th I thought there was more to say. Like those kinds of rigid communicators generate a lot of anxiety and themselves are very anxious. So it takes a lot to, to, to say, well, 
What if we don't settle this with that statement? What if we have more discussion about it? I wonder what, Jane, what, what do you think about it? And if you're peers, you can take the lead on that. By the way, when you're in a group of peers, the way you know you're the actual leader, whether you have the title on your business card or not, is who do people look to when they don't know what to do? And who do people look to when no one's saying anything? Mm. And whoever they look to, that's the actual leader in the room. Mm. Well, I, I want to throw this out because I feel like there's a lot of organizations and you probably face this as a church and a pastor. Um, I'll admit I've said this. So, uh, you know, again, I'm not saying something about it, but, you know, you said that's the way we've always done it. How would you deal with the I'm too busy for that or that's too much work? Because that seems to be something that comes up a lot. And I can imagine with peers, you know, there's general assumptions about what you do with your time and they and there could be some unspoken things but i'm thinking about the sales team with the um, finance team i'm thinking about all these different spaces that someone says that how would you respond to that in a curiosity way without being threatening uh what's my role in this am i a peer or am i that person's boss oh you're a peer I mean, honestly, Peter, if I'm a peer and we're all trying to accomplish something together and their constant feedback is that they've got too much on their plate, I think my next move is to try to see what I can help take off their plate. Mm. So as a general rule, I don't know if this is related to our anxiety conversation, but as a general rule, you know, I've managed and led teams for, gosh, 20 years. I generally believe people when they say that their plate is full. That would just be my general posture. So I think my next move would be rather than to try to convince them to prioritize this thing, I think I would try to say, is there something we can all do to help take things off your plate? Or maybe I would say, listen, I really think this is very important, but I, I'm not interested in pr adding pressure. I'm interested in relieving you of pressure. Would, we, would you be willing to share what else you've got going on and, and I got to say, it's not so I can decide if you're busy. It's, it's can we all help you with some of these things, it's, right? Like in some situations where you say, well, what else do you have going on? That's actually a threatening question. Yeah. Like prove to me you're really busy. So sometimes I might just play out up front. Hey, my goal in this is to actually help get things off your plate. Hmm. Now, if I'm the leader in the room, I'll often say, yep, I get it. Unfortunately, this has become a top priority, whether we want to or not. So let's figure out how to take some things off your plate. Uh, the executive pastor at our church did this recently. You know, we are a smaller church than we were before COVID, just like many churches are. And we're a smaller staff. We had to lay off some really great staff. And Tom led us through this beautiful exercise where we wrote on, on uh, index cards, every single thing all of us do for the church and we put it on the ground and the ground was covered with hundreds and hundreds of things that our staff do and then we prayerfully through a time of prayer and discernment okay what are we picking up and what great ministry things are we leaving on the ground because we no longer have the resource and the people to do it and it was just a very simple way of helping people manage their plate no that's super helpful and again i i think um you know, I think on what you're saying is like join the person, not put the person on spot. And I'm sure that there's other situations, peer to peer or leader to peer, that's the same way. And I, I think that for us to be prepared, um, you know, and even I'll throw myself under the bus when I'm personally saying I'm too busy, um, is that a way to cop out of not saying I think this is a dumb idea? Um, you know, and I, I think even some of those things for us personally is worth kind of walking through. And I guess that's kind of where that came because, you know, I, I have had some great leaders challenge me on that. And that's probably because we're in the relationship of trust where it's like, are you just saying that to say that? Or are you saying that because you actually mean that? And so even what you said, how can I help you? Then it becomes an opportunity. So. Uh, let me ask you, oh, go uh, before we jump on a new topic, I think you've actually raised a really powerful circumstance here where systems theory, the, the gift of this approach is you take people at their word. Yeah. But you're right, Peter, a lot of people actually don't mean what they say. And 
I I very rarely speak that way. Like I tend to more speak my mind. So I'm often confused when someone says I'm too busy when what they really mean is I don't want to do it. And because I've led our culture for 16 years, that's unusual in our staff as well. But if you run into that, the beauty of systems theory is if you're taking somebody at their word, it ends up getting to what they really mean. So if you say, oh, well, let's talk about what's on your plate and how we can lighten your load. That then puts the anxiety back where it belongs on the person who didn't tell the truth. I don't say they're lying. They're just not telling what's really going on. And so if you say, well, let's take a look at your workload together. They'll say, oh, actually, honestly, it's not a workload thing. I don't believe in it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, now we actually can deal. So anxiety is always looking for the truth. I mean, this, this whole approach is always that what's true and let's deal in the truth. Okay, you don't want to do it. Why don't you want to do it? Well, I think it's a dumb idea. Or <laughs> somebody might say, like I've had people say this to me, somebody might say, look, you come up with so many ideas, but you don't think them through very much. And it ends up on my plate to figure it out and you're off on the next idea. That's why I don't want to do it. Well, that kind of feedback is very helpful for me because I don't want to be the kind of leader that's exacerbating my team with my half-baked ideas. Mm -hmm. To the point, Peter, where especially with new staff, is I will coach our new staff on my personality. I'll say, hey, I'm the lead pastor around here, which means I have a lot of power, even though I don't think I'm very powerful. I've learned about this role that people tend to ascribe more power to me than I have. The other thing that's helpful to know about me is I generate a lot of ideas and many of them are really bad, but that's how I get to the good ideas. So I want to help you not get worn out by me and so what I'll do in a staff meeting is sometimes I'll say, hey, guys, I just need 20 minutes to run my brain. So don't take what I'm about to say seriously. And that helps them frame it. And then I've got leaders that will come to me frequently and they'll say, Steve, um, you know how you often say things you don't really mean, but it sounds like you mean them. I'm about to actually go implement this idea from two weeks ago. Is that something you still care about? <laughs> and I don't take that as a threat. That's not like, well, who are you to talk to me that way? I'll, I take that as a courtesy and say, oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked because, yes, we're actually dying on this hill. Let's go. Here's money and resources. Let's do it. Other times I'll say, I'm embarrassed to say this. I barely remember even talking about that thing. But that's naming the dynamic. That's getting from content to the process between us. Hmm. And a habit of that is how I think you build a healthy staff. Well, and uh, now that you want to stick here, I want to stick here. Like, because even something I'm learning about myself, um, you know, I, I heard, you know, a teacher say, you know, when I'm not appreciated, I go on strike, you know, and that's Enneagram language. I'm an Enneagram too. And so when I heard that, it was so sobering because, you know, if I don't feel like you've, appreciated the past 10 ideas that I've executed when I get yeah. to idea 11 um, that's kind of where you know I get really really frustrated but even you know I see myself even on the other side of hey here's a great idea um, and someone saying I'm too busy and kind of getting to the facts of that you know where I have to slow down is you know even what you said they might not hate your idea but you know, even just, you know, where we are in this new world of more digital and trying to figure out what's the right mix with in-person, I tend to lean on one side as an extrovert, someone that's digital, I still like in-person. And if you're not aware of yourself in the room and you're not aware that you do this to people when they see, say that they feel busy and you feel this, you know, um, you know, as a pastor, and I think this is probably related to a lot of people at work as a pastor, you know, we have a lot of, you know, uninvited ideas, which sometimes are yes. really good. But then when yes. they're coming from people, it's kind of like something that I'm learning that I tell myself is you don't think I'm doing enough. Like, don't you think I've thought about this? And I can only imagine our listeners and even what you're prescribing just in this one peer to fear uh, phase is you have to stop and find out more information to actually have that because that's the power in kind of moving forward and even just naming the dynamic. Yeah, um, the world of ideas is actually a great world to practice all this theory because one of the first things you laid out was the person who feels like their ideas are always dismissed. 
What systems theory encourages that person to do is rather than sit in their anxiety of feeling dismissed, stew on it and show up differently, passive aggressively talking to their peers about the boss who always dismisses their idea. Systems theory challenges you to bring that dynamic to the person impacting you. Hey, I feel dismissed when I share my ideas and what I'm noticing in myself is I'm getting angry, defensive, I'm shutting down and I'm no longer willing to share my ideas. If you think all my ideas are bad, it would just help me to hear it now. Now, you might say to that person, yeah, um, I feel like you kick out ideas that haven't been very thought through. I'm going to encourage you to think deeper about them. Or you might say to that person, oh man, I'm so sorry. I had no idea I was communicating dismissiveness to you. No, I want you to share your ideas. I'm very sorry. Right? So system series, always challenging the person, take responsibility and have direct interaction. Then on, uh, it is, it is a, a chronic plague for pastors when the person comes to them and says, hey, have you thought about blank? And that's where assumptions come in because I operated under the assumption for you. I don't even know I operated under this assumption that, hey, if you have an idea, I must implement it. And so I attracted people in our church who have a lot of ideas but have never actually implemented them so they don't know how <laughs> difficult it is to give birth to an idea and raise it into an adult. Like taking a concept, gestating it, delivering it, nourishing it, and turning it into a functioning adult in any organization, that is very, very difficult. But there are some people in the workplace that get paid an insane amount of money just to generate ideas, but they don't know how hard it is because someone else is getting paid money to execute the idea. In the church, at least in my church, if you have the idea, we expect you to execute it. Mm. And so in my early days, people coming constantly with half-baked ideas that they were not willing to sweat and weep for. And uh, they'd get quite frustrated when we'd say, well, Tuesday morning, 7 a.m., let's get that going. Let's put your, put your time where your mouth is because they expected that we would then sacrifice ourselves for their ideas. So, yeah, ideas is a great field to really study anxiety spread for sure. Wow, this time has gone by really fast. Um, I, I want to get I want to get personal with you. Um, you know, we're in no rush. I think this is going to be super helpful for our listeners. Um, you just made a career tra transition. Um, you know, I asked you to talk about your twenties. Talk to me right now about how you're trying to manage the anxiety of going from a pastor to a consultant. Um, yeah, just talk about that, how you're processing through that. Yeah, and actually, uh, as of the recording of this, we're right, we're, we're not in the transition yet. So we're down to three candidates for my, my role. But I think we're probably 60 to 90 days away still from actual transition. So there are, there are three sources of anxiety that I'm carrying pretty constantly. And I would say I'm probably getting a, a B minus uh, score. Like, I don't think I'm doing very well. Uh, and so a lot of what I do is I help people diagnose the sources of their anxiety because that helps you navigate it. The first source was financial security. I'm stepping off a steady paycheck. You know, most pastors, we don't get paid much, but it is steady. And um, my book has not sold a lot of books. So basically, here I am, feels like I'm rolling the dice financially on a small selling book. But it's had such a profound impact in a small group that it requires full-time dedication to cultivate it into a full-time thing. So I'm jumping off a financial cliff and it's a, it's a huge step of faith for my family. Um, and that's been really good for me. But if, if my wife Lisa were here, she would say, uh, up until a couple of months ago, it was a huge roller coaster. My emotional well-being was all over the place as I went from convinced that we'd be fine to convinced that we'd be homeless. Like it was really quite difficult for her. Um, because I feel tremendous financial pressure. So that was one. The current anxiety I'm in is I'm, I'm doing two full-time jobs. I'm a full-time pastor in a COVID pandemic church, which as you said, is, is probably one of the hardest ministry years of my life. 
At the same time, I'm trying to build my consulting into a full-time business so that when I step off the financial cliff, I've got something to step onto, which is probably going to be January. So we're coming, we're counting down. So just the weariness of my brain, both always being on because I'm working too much, and then the different kinds of work I have to do from building a sermon to pastoring staff to then entrepreneurially developing, like I'm getting emotionally taxed just from my brain jumping around. And then the third source is grief. Uh, My wife and I put 16 years of leading this church. We've gone through so much together as a church and just the grief, even though it was my decision, just the grief of stepping away and uh, the end of a season, it's it's real work. So what I do, I mean, I'm, I do think I'm getting a B minus. What I do is just take it seriously and attend to it. And that takes a lot of time. And, and yeah, we're, we're getting toward the end of that journey. You know, I want to kind of stop right here because I think what you did, you modeled something that I, I probably never even thought about. You know, I think my wife and I, we get into the habit of just talking about situations And what you did was you narrowed it down, not only to the sources of the anxiety, but you actually created yourself. And I I imagine, um, I'm married to a mental health therapist just like you, but I imagine if you said, you know, hey, I think I'm an A minus, your wife would say, no, you're a B minus, um, to have that help. So even just, you could have a better conversation, it sounds like, by even what you just did there. Yeah, and I would also say a B minus is very much a passing grade. You know, we always want to get an A all the time, but mm. in anxiety management, if you can if you can be well a few times out of ten, you know, we want to be well ten out of ten times. If you can be well three out of ten times, that's still huge progress. Awesome. Um, before we get to our last question, uh, share a little bit more about your consulting role. Just. Um, you know, this is kind of, if I'm an individual and I'm looking for more growth in this area, cause I want to develop, I might even be a CEO of an organization. I might want to bring you in just share a little bit more of what, about what you do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's two primarily primary things. Um, in my church context for the last 10 years, I've taught a class over the course of a year and we just, we meet every other week and we do one concept, we put it into practice and we go slowly in a group over the year. So what I launched in January, it's it's seven, eight months old now, is a community, an online community that replicates our church class. The, the problem with this kind of material is everyone wants the, the one day or the one hour solution, but it's really a posture over a year. So my online community is called Capable Life. The first three letters are capable being C-A-P, which reminds us that we're to be calm, aware, and present Hmm. in the workplace and the home place. So it's tools to help you be calm, aware, and present at work and at home. CapableLife.me is the website. And people can join. You can pay monthly or annually. It's really affordable. We've kept it very cheap. But it's a series of 10-minute videos that you can watch on your own time. It's a confidential discussion forum. It's a monthly Zoom. It's a whole experience that you can do as little or as much as you want over a year or so, or some people are going to be in it for two or three years to really be well. That's probably the, the best offering I offer for individuals. And right now we have about 300 members from 16 different countries. It's a global community. It's pastors, it's business leaders, it's people in medical professional parents. It's a quite a eclectic group. And then if, if you want me, then typically what I'm doing is coming into an organization and I'm either working with the executive leadership or the whole staff, mm. both in business, nonprofit and church. And I'm doing anything from like a half day to four days. That's kind of the what I do. And so a half day would be an intensive with a couple of bathroom breaks. The four days, this is the fate. This has been really fun. Is I'll actually show up to your place, and I'll be like the the guru for the week. So every morning for two or three hours, we all gather, and then you go about your work the rest of the day. So we'll do like a workshop in, in the morning. Then the rest of the day, you go about your work, and then I'm on call. I'll take one-on-one appointments through the day for anyone that wants some one-on-one coaching. 
where an organization will bring me in for like four or five days. So those are kind of the extremes of what I do. I do some of that over Zoom. Most of it now, even with COVID, is, is travel where I actually show up to you. So even this week, I'm about to head to Austin and then Chicago for, for that stuff. And then in November, I'm in England and Northern Ireland. So, um, so yeah, people can reach out if they're interested in, in that work as well. Awesome. Well, hey, we close this podcast with the same question. Um, and as I always share, I respond to the question and then our guest cleans up whatever mess I left. So, uh, (laughs) so, um, you know, what does Jesus have to do say about anxiety in the workplace? And, um, you know, so I, I think what I'm leaving with, you know, with faith, obviously you touched on the gospel, you might even touch on it more, but, um, I was recently in the conversation about, uh, the sermon on the Mount, which is in the gospel of Matthew five through seven. And I think sometimes we are so focused on our behavior that we're not looking at the heart and this, what you have brought up and just even the growth in my life is all truth is God's truth. There's something about family systems theory. There's something about chronic anxiety that matches with the Bible. So, you know, when Jesus talks about all of these heart issues, he's saying, you know, it's not just having an affair, it's the lust that you have beforehand. It's not just being, um, wanting to kill someone. It's the anger. And Jesus kind of ties all these things together. And I think that there's a freedom when he does that to say, when you acknowledge your human brokenness, I can come in and change that. Now I brought up two extremes because they come up a lot, but I just kind of feel like how much more fulfilled in your life could you be in understanding and recognizing the gospel? How much more powerful could it be to not just live life coasting? And I think at the essence of Christianity and at the essence of this question would be, what if I could see my job in its right place, you know, a place to use my passions and gifts and, and to serve and love my neighbor, as opposed to seeing it as a huge burden that it was never supposed to carry. So that's kind of what I'm leaving with. Yeah, it's a beautiful vision. I mean, I think I have a lot of the similar overlap, which is Jesus came that we may have life and life to the full. And I think life to the full looks like peace, freedom, and love. Mm. And what if you could work on your posture to increase your chance of encountering that in the workplace? You know, you give 40 to 70 hours a week to your workplace. What would your life look like if you pursued peace, freedom, and love, the, the fruit of the gospel? in what for many people is the most high stress environment in their life. You can do it. Anyone can do it. And it takes work. It's not easy. But yeah, I I share that vision too. I I do think the truth sets us free. And I think chronic anxiety keeps us bound because it's based on falsehood. So yeah, I'm pretty passionate about it. Steve, thank you so much um, for investing your time in our listeners. And um, uh, people can find you. You have a great uh, handle, Steve Cusswords. So you can find you there. We'll be tagging you. And then also, Steve has a podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety. I have to admit, I'm a little behind. When does your next season start? You know what? I think it starts uh, end of August. We're still on summer break as of this recording, but probably next Monday or the Monday after we start dropping episodes. Okay. Um, And this episode, I think, comes out in the fall. Um, I'll say September. Maybe Nathan will edit it out, but uh, it'll be coming in there. But Steve, thanks so much for joining us. And um, thanks for being a part of Why God Why. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on.